Hey, good morning. Good evening, good afternoon. If you're online out there, wherever you are, thank you for joining us. But special shout out to all of you who are live here. Love you guys. Thank you for being here. Um, You know, as I go through the message today, I talk about how important it is to surround yourself with other people and to not isolate. But just from my heart right here, man, it feels good to look out and see you guys. So thank you for coming. If you're out there online, we've got some room. We've got some empty seats waiting for you. So we'd love to see you next weekend. Um, Pastor Gabe did a lot of announcements. There's always so many things to go over. And there are always other things. One thing I just want to give you a heads up on is we had one of our very very near and dear part of our family. Wally Early passed away last week. Um, We are working on a memorial service arrangement. So for those of you who know the family and want to be a part of that, watch our social media. We'll be announcing a time and date and places for that. So please um, watch for that. Uh, We'd love to have you here and just just help just celebrate a life. Um, So moving on. We have, again, welcome to visitors. If this is your first time here, buckle up, because we have a lot that we're going to go through. I teach a little bit differently than a lot of churches. I don't teach um, themes and concepts. I like to jump into the Word of God. The Bible is the authority, is the one word that we should be focusing on. I love to jump into that, tear scriptures apart, and really, really digest them to find out really what God has to say about what's going on. So if you've missed any of our previous messages, we are in a series called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. Um, Job, as soon as you say that, people's like, oh no, pain and suffering and grief and sorrow and, and perseverance and patience, right? Things that we all just want every day. We're like, give me more of that. Almost nobody ever does that. But the book of Job is so much deeper than that. It is so much more about God's ability to take everything in our lives to elevate us to a place of intimacy and closeness with him that maybe we would never have before. And the book of Job is is certainly no different. So I think it's key to our understanding. When we look around at everything that's going on in the world today, like Pastor Gabe said, all you have to do is turn on the news or listen to people around you, and it is all sorrow and chaos and just bad things happening all over the world. And we look at that, even as Christians, we look at that. But imagine if you don't know the Lord and you look at all that and you're like, okay, I can't even begin to understand how a loving God could allow all these things to happen in the world. Not only can I not understand it, why would he? And why would I trust in a God that would allow all these terrible things to happen? Why would I do that? I think that the book of Job is so foundational to our understanding of that. And let me be clear on that. It's not going to answer that question. The book of Job and all my teaching is not going to answer the question of why God allows this. But it helps you, I hope, to understand God's heart and how he can and will take everything that comes your way and use it for your good. Scripture promises us that. But there's such a disconnect when we see the things that are going on, or even more so, when we feel the pain in our hearts, or in our bodies, in our flesh, or a loved one near us does, when we feel that kind of pain, all of a sudden knowing, well, Scripture says this, the Bible promises this, kind of rings hollow sometimes. So we need to understand God's heart 
before I think that the scripture is really going to, to find a place in our, in our hearts where it can make a difference. That's why we're in this book of Job. If you've missed any of the previous series, you can go back online through Facebook or through our YouTube channel and catch the previous ones. I want to encourage you to do that. We're in chapter 3 right now. We're just starting chapter 3, in fact. Um, chapter 3 kind of switches gears to what's happening. Chapters 1 and 2 are all about who Job is, establishing him as a blameless individual. Not sinless and perfect, but as close as you can get. He's blameless. Even God calls him blameless. So he's in that place. He's blessed. He's well-to-do. He's got plenty of, he's got servants. He's got children. He's been blessed in just about every earthly way that you can be blessed. And then suddenly we see those things stripped away from him. And it's his response when things are stripped away from him that is what we're looking at here. It's not necessarily about, let's talk about how bad the boils were that he had to be scraped with pottery. Let's, not, let's talk about the grief of losing a loved one, all of which are valid. But the most important takeaway from the entire study in Job, I believe, is Job's response when things come his way. We will never be able to stop things from coming our way. It's going to happen. It's our response that matters. That's what we're in here for. So last week, when we were going through uh, the Scriptures, last week we finished up with chapter 2. And we saw Job has been afflicted with boils. He's had his, his children have been killed, tragic accident, his livestock, everything that he counts on for income and his livelihood has been stripped away. And now his body is physically attacked. He's got boils and sores, and he's just he's in a bad way. He's taken himself out of his home, out of the city, and he's just sitting in a trash heap outside of the city. And he's sitting there just in pain and suffering to a depth that I think most of us couldn't even begin to imagine. And last week, the end of last week, what happens is Job's friends. He's, remember, he's blameless. He's a good guy. People know Job. He's, he's, he's the kind of guy that's encouraging to be around. He's always willing to help people. He's a good, upright, upstanding businessman. He's the kind of people that people want to gather to. And so his friends three friends specifically here, come from all over the place, neighboring countries. They make the trip to come and see him, just to comfort him, just to be around him in this time of suffering, and, and just, to, just to be. They don't say anything. They just sit with him while he's in grief. So the last scripture of last week was Job chapter 2, verse 13. Let's start there. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. They didn't try to fix him. They didn't try to offer their favorite scripture, hoping that somehow it would would find a solution for him. All they did, they just spent time with him. Not a word was spoken. Just time in silence. And up to this point, his friends are doing a great job. But like anyone else, we suddenly resort to trying to fix the situation. And we're going to see starting next week when that just goes off the rails. So I'll warn you, though, as we go into chapter 3, chapter 3 is a heavy chapter. It's, there's no other way around it. It is a heavy chapter, as if hearing about suffering and, and, and the pain that he's gone through wasn't heavy. This is almost more so. But we switch into a style of writing now. It's, it's poetic. Now, when I say poetic, you think of, of rhymes and things that this kind of poetry doesn't rhyme. 
It's an actually an ancient form of poetry um, that it uses comparisons and contrasts and repetition of ideas in a certain form that's poetic, not some purpose. We'll see that actually for the next for the next uh, 38, 39 chapters of Job is all written in this poetic form. Now, the reason is not because it's flowery and fun to read, so it's poetry. Nobody's ever going to bind it in a book and read it for their daily devotionals, I don't, I don't think. But it's done that way because it makes it easy to remember, easy to relay, because back then, writing was not all that simple. So they put things in a form that was easy to relay orally or verbally, and, and easy to remember. And so that's why it's kind of written in this form. So just be aware of that as we go through, that it's written that way. But what we're about to see as we transition into chapter 3 is we're about to see a man who, he's experiencing a pain beyond what I think most of us could even imagine. A lot of us have experienced pieces of the kind of pain that he's going through, but I doubt much in the depth that he has. Remember, losing his children, losing his livelihood, uh, his obvious physical pain, the afflictions that he's going through. Um, Not only has he lost his children, has he lost his livelihood, but he's had to see his wife suffer this as well. Any of you who have ever had a spouse that you love or anybody that you care about deeply, watching them suffer is almost worse than feeling it yourself. So Job's had to see that. If we think now, people debate about Job's wife and her character, and and a lot of that's true, but it's his wife, and he's seen her lose all these things as well. So in addition to all these other things he's got to personally be be grieving, um, he's seen his wife lose everything too. And so all of those things together, though, pale in comparison to to the pain that he's going to experience now, what we're going to look at as we go through. So I would ask you, knowing all those things, knowing what you know about what Job's going through up to this point, what pain could be worse than all of that? I'll give you a hint. It's the same pain that caused Jesus Christ to cry out in anguish. We'll talk about that more later, but think about that. It's the same kind of pain. Let's get into Scripture and find out what happens here. So we're at the beginning of chapter 3. After the seven days, seven days of silence, Job is sitting on an ash heap outside of the town. He's just, he's just in complete pain and agony. His friends come, sit with him to comfort him. It's probably comforting to a certain extent. We don't know exactly how long that Job has been there. But just think about the pain he's gone through. Now, we know that it's seven days at least because that's how long he sat there in silence. But there had to be time before that for his friends to hear about it, to travel there. And, and so between all this, it's probably, my guess has probably been months. We don't know for sure. But he's probably been in this intense place of agony for months. And after a week of just sitting in silence, how many of you know that that's when thoughts just run rampant in your head? Think about where Job is. Kind of think about this anguish that he's going through as I read this to you. So we're going to do chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. That's all we're going to look at today. And I'm going to read it to you. Now, I use the New American Standard Version. If you have a different version, it'll read a little bit differently. Whether you have a Bible or not, 
Follow along with me as I read this and just listen to the agony that he's going through. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said, a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse the day curse it, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. Let it not see the breaking dawn because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Now, I'm pretty sure that no one has ever taken their life verse from Job. How many of you have a favorite life verse? I'd be willing to bet everything I have that it's not from Job chapter 3. This is pure This is pure pain, a pure lament from someone who is absolutely at the end of their rope. He's saying, essentially, I wish I'd never been born. How many of you in here or out there online know the kind of anguish that it takes or have experienced the kind of anguish it takes for even a moment to say, I wish I'd never been born? In that moment, The enemy will wipe away all memory of every good thing that ever happened to you. And all you'll see is the pain you're going through. All you'll see is the bad that has happened to you. You'll forget that just the day before something good happened to you or the blessings of a family or the blessings of of the very air that you breathe. We forget all that stuff. And we get to this point. It's happened to me before. I know that it's happened to some of you before, and it's a place that the enemy wants to get you to, just to regret and to forget every blessing that's ever come your way, everything you have to be thankful to God for. He wants you to forget that and just focus on how bad things are right now. It happens over and over again. We see it. Now, Job, up to this point, he's done a pretty admirable job in hanging on to his integrity and hanging on to his righteousness in the face of all this pain, all these blows that are coming his way again and again. After losing his children all the way back and his livelihood, his response is this. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. After having his body attacked, painful boils and all the things that came his way, it says this. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's done a great job so far, hanging on to that, hanging on to who he knows God is and trusting in God's sovereignty. But we all have a breaking point. We all have that point that we'll reach. So the obvious question here to me is, what besides, what besides the, obvious, the pain that he's going through could cause Job, after all this time, think about months and all this, this time of a week of silence where he's not saying anything at all, 
to just suddenly, it just suddenly boils over. What could cause him to get to that point? Hold on to his integrity, hold on to his righteousness, not blame God, and then all of a sudden, it just boils over into this outburst. What could cause that? Because prior to this moment, Job was entirely submitted to God's sovereign will. He said, I don't understand it, but it's God's will, and that's enough for me. He's been in that place, and he's been rock solid. So why now does he suddenly, like, flip a switch, and he's a different guy? And he's got this, this outburst that he comes to. Let's take a closer look and try and figure that out through Scripture. Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, or afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Very first thing that he does is just say, I'd wish I'd never been born. Here's what I believe through, through my study, um, through listening to some other scholars and looking at other commentaries and really asking the Lord to illuminate Scripture to me and show me what's going on here because I struggled with this too. Here's what I believe. Satan was given permission to go and torment Job's body giving him the boils and all the things that accompany that that came along, I believe that Satan was also allowed to torment Job's mind. And it's not just my idea. Scripture bears this out from Job itself, things that he says, things that he goes through. We know that Job suffered from depression. We know that he did. Job chapter 30, verse 16. We'll get to all these later more in depth. But chapter 30, verse 16 says this. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. Now we look at, let's look at it more closely here. That word affliction. If you think of the word affliction, you naturally think, okay, well, he's he's got boils, he's had all this loss, he's had all these things. That's being afflicted if nothing else is, right? But let's look at that word. Sometimes you know I like to look at the either the Hebrew or the Greek translation or the root of those words, because it sometimes gives us a little different context or a little different meaning. That word affliction, in the Hebrew, it's a word called onyi. That's how it's pronounced, onyi. And what it means, the actual definition in Hebrew is depression. Days of depression. So that separates it from the physical things that are happening to a mental issue of depression. So we know he suffered from depression. Also, he suffered extensively from nightmares. One verse that talks about that, Job 7, 14 says, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. Who here gets attacked in the quiet of the night when you've got nothing but silence in your own thoughts? And the enemy comes to you, and that's when he lies. Many, many people I know, that's the time that they get hit the hardest, and Job's getting hit from nightmares as well. He's also being hit with just disappointment. Disappointment in the things that he thought he knew the things he thought he could count on, suddenly he's having to question these things. Can I really count on those things that I thought I could? His trust in God, his relationship with God gave him such a peace in the midst of all this storm. Now he's like, can I really trust that like I thought I could? Job chapter 30 verse 26 says, when I expected good, evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. He's expecting good. He's expecting light. And he got the opposite result. It's making him question everything that he thought that he knew. 
And it's leaving him in this place of depression. I believe that depression in this context, now there's, there's, there's clinical, chemical depression. There's different levels of depression. I don't mean to oversimplify this, but in this context, I believe that depression can be defined as a state of disconnection from God, from family, and from friends. How many of us, our first response when we're feeling depressed, and I, I mean, uh, DSM-3 clinical definition, we've hit all the bullet points of clinical depression. I'm talking about maybe even just beginning with, I'm having a bad time. What's the first thing that we say? Don't talk to me right now. I just want to be alone. We isolate. We self-isolate. And the more you go down that path of depression, the more you self-isolate. I don't want to talk to other people. I don't want to talk to somebody that's going to offer me advice. I don't want to pray to God. You may not say it out loud, but that's what we do. I just want to sit and stew. And somehow, you assume we're going to find a way to dig ourselves out of this. I don't know how, when we're in a pit, we think that if you give us a shovel, we can just keep digging and we'll get out of the pit somehow. You just get deeper into it. If you've ever been in that place, you're in good company. We've all been there, first of all. But let me talk to you about some scripture, some Bible heroes that have been through some similar things. Uh, David, Psalm 69.3 reads, I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. That's David. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19.4, says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. It's Elijah. He's pleading for death. Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And then probably the one that impacted my heart the most, Isaiah 53, 3. Prophesies about Jesus Christ, our coming Messiah, and it says this. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Grief, pain, suffering, it's nothing new. We see it all the time. The enemy wants to think you're the only one who's ever gone through it, to isolate you and make you ashamed of it. And that's when he gets you to question everything that you know. But this, this coincidentally, at the point, this is where Satan gets his first win, if you will, in this battle. Job actually steps over the line. He sins, and he begins to question God's plan, going all the way back to the beginning. Now, note, as we go through this, he never, he never ever curses God directly. It's always kind of sideways and, or in a roundabout sort of way, indirectly. But he does sin here because he questions God's plan for him. Now, when we think of sin, sin, we think of Ten Commandments sin. Thou shalt not. Okay? Most of us say, oh, I'm not sinning because I'm not doing those things. Sin just simply means missing the best of what God had for you. Missing the mark of what God has for you. And if we miss that, that's what sin means. Okay? So when we question his will, why was I ever born? I wish I'd never been born. We are setting aside every purpose, every plan that he ever had for you. 
and saying he'd be better off if none of that ever happened. This is where Job goes. Job chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and let the night which said, A boy is conceived. He wants the whole day just to flat disappear. That's, that's a bad place to be. We're going to see Job repent of this later on. And when he does repent, he points back to this moment of where he doubted God's purposes. More than a thousand years after this, remember Job written about, give or take, 2000 BC. Okay? It's the first book of the Bible, by the way, that was actually written down. The first one. More than a thousand years after Job wrote this, there's a prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes this, and he actually borrows this idea, this very lament that Job said. Jeremiah borrows from that. Jeremiah 20, verses 14 through 18. Listen how closely it parallels. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, a baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. It's become, by this time, a thousand years later after Job, it's become almost a cliche saying. Now, Jeremiah, he wasn't going through anything like what Job went through. He's simply, he's finding a rough road. They don't want to listen to what I'm saying. They're not obeying what God's word is. So he's lamenting that it's nowhere near what Job went through. But he's echoing those words, and it's become, at this point, kind of cliche. So we see that thread continue through the Bible, by the way, in different verses Let's go back to Job, though. Chapter 3, verse 4. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. So this, at this point, we just see continually, it starts to reinforce that Satan has succeeded in causing Job to question God's purposes, God's plan, really all the way back even to creation. Why did you even let, let light shine on the world? And he's reminding, reminds us, that is, Job didn't have this scripture. But he's going back and he's basically refuting God's original plan. Genesis 1, the third and fourth verses of Genesis in the whole Bible says, then God said, what did he say? Let there be light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And so Satan has gotten Job to this point to where he's just saying, all that that you did that was good, Forget that. I wish that had never happened. He goes on, Job 3, 5, Let the darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Remember how I told you Job is kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ? This is one of those moments. And in this case, he's actually foreshadowing an event that happens 2,000 years after Job. When another man's agony would be met, with darkness. That's Matthew 27, 45. How many of you know this scripture? Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. That's Jesus on the cross. So this is a foreshadowing of that moment. We see that thread all the way through the book of Job. Helps us to understand what Jesus went through and why he did, at least the best that our human minds can. Now, Again, next couple of scriptures, Job basically, he just wants to erase the entire day. He wishes that day never even happened. Let darkness seize it. Don't put it on the calendar. I don't want a birthday party. No celebrations. 
I can't see Job having a birthday party anyway. But he's clearly just saying, I just wish that day never even existed. Absolutely questioning God's plan for him and doubting everything that he thought he knew. Job 3.8, let those curse it who curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. This is a little bit of, a, of an issue here. I don't know anybody out there or anybody in house here who have a King James, KJV, that they use for their study. The King James is the only one that translates that word differently. That word, um, I just lost it, uh, Leviathan. Let's look at that word Leviathan right there. Most versions translate that as Leviathan. And if you take that translation, remember I said there's sometimes translation issues. Job is written in an ancient, ancient, paleo, early version of Hebrew. And so there are a lot of translation difficulties that happen here, especially through different cultures and things. If we look at it as Leviathan, Leviathan is a mythical sea monster. The Bible talks extensively about Leviathan through there. So it was a, it was a sea creature. It could have been a whale or a giant squid. We don't know. But other cultures have this mythological Leviathan as well. Some of multi-headed creatures, things like that. If that's the correct translation, Job is saying, I, I wish this sea monster would just swallow up the entire day. Giant sea monster come and just, and just eat all of it so it's just gone. Again, remember, poetic language as we go through. However, another translation of that word Leviathan in Hebrew is mourning. And that's what KJV uses. It actually uses the term mourning. As, as in being sad. And that points us to, all through Hebrew culture, it was very common for there to be professional mourners. If somebody had died and you didn't have enough family members or anybody to properly mourn the dead, you would go hire professional mourners who would lament and wail and make a big show of it, and that's what they did. So that would point then back to these professional mourners. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan, points to these professional mourners. Job's not very good at cursing. He's not very good at creating a big show. He doesn't have a lot of experience. He's saying, let's get those people. They can make a right show of this, and they can mourn, and they can wail. Let them curse that day. Either way, it's not critical to our theology necessarily in what's going on here. I just like to point out those differences depending on your translation. Job chapter 3, verse 10. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. He's cursing the day because it didn't close his mom's womb. He had allowed him to be born, allowed that day to happen, and he's wishing that it never had. Have you ever thought that it would be better to have never lived at all than to suffer pain? I know there are those among us who think that. Unfortunately, it's more and more common as we get into this time of COVID isolation. We get alone. We get in places where we don't have the support and the normal things that we rely on. And we start just wishing, why are we here? Why am I even here? People use this idea of bringing pain onto yourself or onto your children by even having them in this world to, to justify things like, I'm not having kids. I'm not having children because I don't want to bring them into this world. Or even more dangerously, where they bring in the idea where I'm going to take things into my own hands and I'm going to end my life 
because I never should have been born to begin with. This is where the enemy wants to have you, and it's something that's been common throughout time. Obviously, Job is struggling with this here. There's a, a Greek historian. His name is Herodotus. He lived about 450 B.C., about the time of uh, the prophet Nehemiah. And he encounters this people group, modern-day Bulgaria, but they're called the, the Trousies. It's not super important, but they have this culture in which they celebrate death and mourn birth with this idea. Here's what he says about them. When a child is born, remember ancient, ancient culture, when a child is born, all its family sit around about in a circle and weep for the woes it will have to undergo now that it's come into the world, making mention of every ill that falls to the lot of humankind. When, on the other hand, a man has died, they bury him with laughter and rejoicings and say, now he is free from a host of sufferings and enjoys the most complete happiness. That kind of attitude makes total sense if everything is about what happens to you on earth. If you have no eternal perspective, if you have no hope in Christ, if you don't have that, then it's all about your health, your well-being, your prosperity here on earth. And why would you bring a child in that's potentially not going to experience those things? Why would you bring a child into a place that's going to feel pain? If you don't have an eternal perspective, it would be easy to see it like that. And unfortunately, that, this place of despair, that's where the enemy has Job right now. Job's in this place where he's starting to, why, why was I ever here? All that I've ever been given, all that will ever happen to me is worth nothing because of the pain that I'm in. And the enemy is just pounding away every thought, every moment in his silence, sitting there for seven days in silence with his friends. The enemy's just lying, 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 and that's all he's hearing. He's feeling his pain. He's thinking about what he's gone through, and he has completely forgotten about everything the Lord has blessed him with. Job's pain wasn't just physical loss. With all the torment with all of the lies of the enemy, Job now, his torment, his, what's causing him to cry out in pain is that Job fears that he has lost God. He fears that he has lost the one thing that he thought he could always count on, is God and his relationship and his closeness, and he is terrified that he's lost that. In this entire book, he's never lamented his worldly losses, He's never done that, and he never does do it, where he, where he laments what he's lost on earth. It's his intimacy and his closeness and his ability to trust in God that is in danger here, and that terrifies him. And he's crying out in pain. The absence of God's presence is what Job fears the most. That's what's causing this, and the enemy knows that, and he will prey on that just as he does with all of us. That thing that he knows he can get you with, because yours is different than the person sitting next to you. He'll go after that. Devil's not stupid. Now, we know one other instance. There's one other really important instance in the Bible where someone who is intimate with the Father, I mean really intimate with the Father, suddenly ceases to feel his presence at a time of intense physical pain. Anybody know who that was off the top of your head? 
That was Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, 45 and 46, just read this. Now from the sixth hour, this is Jesus on the cross. Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has intimacy with the Father more than anybody ever has. But in that moment of pain and anguish and the devil pounding away at his thoughts, he has a moment where he thinks God has forsaken him. Satan's victory in that moment and with Job was in causing even just a momentary, momentary doubt that God loves his children and he'll never leave them. Most of us don't have that kind of strength. And Satan will take when you're weak, when you're distracted, when you're in pain, and he'll prey on that. And he will do everything he can to get you to believe the lie that God doesn't care about you. God's got other things to do that are far more important than you. And so whatever you're going through, you just need to figure out a way and get over it. In fact, here's a shovel. Start digging. Maybe you can get out. That's what Satan does. He will use that lie. The attacks against us in the physical world, bodily, fleshly, things that happen to us and our children, financially, those are just tactics to get us to weaken our resolve to trust in God. And when you are weak and when you are vulnerable, we see with Job, it comes one after another. He doesn't give you one and say, deal with that. I'll come back with another one. He just keeps them flying. Everybody ever seen that, that dynamic? doesn't just happen in ones, right? One thing will happen to you, and before you can even deal with that, the next thing comes, and the next thing. He will use that weakness to get us to abandon prayer, to get us to isolate ourselves, and to get us, most of us, me, I do this, to just resort to trying to work harder to get myself out. Battle's not about who can work harder or accomplish more. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a battle. It's a battle over your mind. And the enemy is relentless. He's relentless. He knows what will get to you. And he will attack that thing time after time after time. I've had it happen here before. I'm a pastor here, and I've noticed that there'll be days when all of a sudden I'm just like, I feel terrible. Not physically terrible. I just feel terrible. I feel like, why am I, why am I doing this? It's usually when I'm here stacking chairs or cleaning something or fixing a light that's burnt out for the 500th time this year. Uh, <laughs> slightly exaggerating, but not by much. It's in those moments that I go, why am I in ministry? Why am I even doing this? Does it even make a difference? And immediately the enemy will flood into my head going, yeah, what difference does it make? There are so many things you can do to make money other than this. And it's all about money, right? He knows when you're vulnerable and he will attack you. And at that moment, I have to say, I haven't really spent any time with the Father in the last few days. That's where this comes from. I have isolated myself in my to-do list, in my busyness, in my, in some cases, ministering to other people. I spent all week sitting down and having coffees with people and talking to people and, and helping people through tough times in their lives and being a pastor. 
but I didn't spend any time intimately with just me and the Father. And Satan, just like a prowling lion, he sees that and he goes, he's weak right now. And I can start feeding him some lies and he might just take the hook. We have to spend time with the Father. We have to not isolate from him or from one another. This is when it happens. If you're believing any of these lies, let me rephrase that. What lie is Satan telling you right now? Out there online, in here, what lie are you believing from Satan right now? Is it that you're not worth his time? You're not worth his love? How about this? Are you worth anybody's love? Maybe you're not even worth anybody to love you. That everyone else has it together more than you? Look around. All these people, they're perfect. You guys are amazing. You all have it together. Nobody's got anything going on in their lives. No struggles. You know what I wish sometimes? It'll never happen. I always wish I put name tags back by the door. And when you walked into church, everybody had to take a name tag and write down what their deal was. You know what I mean by that? Here's, here's my thing. If we did that, no one would look around and go, they have it together more than me. You know what? If we did that, we'd look at the other person and we'd go, can I pray for you? That should be our response. Not looking at them going, they're perfect and I'm broken. Because we're all broken. We are all broken. Don't believe the lie that everyone else has it together and you're the only one that doesn't. And that God can't possibly care about you or worry about you until you get your stuff together. If you're believing that lie and that has caused you to question your value on this earth, maybe to have thoughts like Job, if you're out there online, if you're having thoughts like Job, I wish I would have never been born. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It is a lie the enemy wants to get you to believe. One of my favorite scriptures that talks about your value in God. The Bible is all about this is how much God loves you. But there's one that I found that just kept illuminating to me. I want to share it with you. It's Zephaniah. It's one of the minor prophets. Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. That's how the Father thinks about you. That's not for somebody else. That's for you. You are his treasure. And then a more commonly known one, I'll put this one on the screen. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Father God gave his Son so that he could have fellowship with you. Think about that. The creator of the heavens and of the earth gave the thing that was most precious. He exchanged that for just a little bit of time with you. That's what he wanted. You were precious enough to him to say, I will give everything I have to spend time with you. That's what you mean to him. Don't let anybody, don't let the devil tell you otherwise. Job is getting beat up and he is in the worst possible place and he is right on the edge of snapping. 
And we're going to see how God strengthens him and takes him through that trial. But what you need to know is that you are God's treasure. All of you. No matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, you are God's treasure. If you feel alone, it's because you're isolated from God, from family, from friends. Don't do that. We have so many ways. We have so many ways, practically, that you can do that, okay? Pastors always talk about all these spiritual ways that you can stay connected with God. I want to give you some practical things. Don't isolate. The enemy wants to get you alone. Divide and conquer. That's what he wants to do because he can lie to you all day long. There's nobody to help you refute that. And just like Job, you start, you start falling. Pray to it. Don't isolate. At the church here, just here at Discover, we have women's groups. We have women's Bible study that happens. We have online prayer that happens. And it's online, but you're at least interacting with other people. We have our men's group. Our men's group has moved from Thursday nights. We moved it to Tuesday nights. The reason we did that is because I know there are many, many men here in this church who need it who need to be a part of a men's group. And I would see every week, I would see half a dozen of them here on our worship team and on our AV team that couldn't make it on Thursday nights because that's worship practice. We moved it to Tuesdays because I value that so much. I'll be there, by the way, because I need it just as much as everybody else does. Be a part of something. Come for our fellowship. Come live. If you're watching at home and you're just gotten in the pattern, that's just what we do. We just watch it online. I want to ask you, can you make it? Make the commitment, make the effort to come be with us in person. We have some chairs for you. We're being safe, but we've got room, and there's something to be said spiritually about being in a room full of people, and you know that they care about you. And then when service is over, don't just run out the door and go home. I know we kind of got in that habit over the, the COVID stuff, but we're having after, we have between service and after service, we got some room, fellowship, talk, and don't just say, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Okay. See ya. We have to be vulnerable. Don't believe the lie that if you share who you really are and what you're going through, that all of a sudden people are going to judge you. Satan's the one that wants you to believe that. Use the body of believers around you to encourage you. And if you feel alone, reach out. Reach out to a friend. Reach out to family. Reach out to us as staff. Here's our email addresses. All of us, everybody on staff here at Discover, plus the bottom one, which is prayer, our emails are all just our first name, at discovercommunity.church. Okay? Reach out to us. If you're feeling alone, if you're feeling in one of these places where you think the enemy's got you on the ropes, and man, one more, one more good blow, and you're going to go down. Reach out for help. If you're out there online, same thing. If you need prayer, we'll pray for you. We have a prayer team who's going to be in the back now if you're live in here. Take advantage of that. We have the crosses where you can pin cards on there. If you need prayer, pin it to there. It's, it's anonymous. We'll do that. If you're online, you can either respond on the comments in the online chat that you're watching or email us, prayer at discovercommunity.church. We'll pray for you. Prayer is incredibly powerful. You know what else is powerful? Is knowing that God is still answering prayer. God is still working in our lives. If we don't talk about it, how do we know? How does Scripture ultimately say that we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's why we have our new testimony board over there. 
If God has done something in your life, let me rephrase that. God has done great things in your life. I know it, but we don't talk about it. And therefore, people think, is God still even really moving? Write it on one of those testimony cards. They're all blank over there. Just write one on and pin it to the board. My hope is at the end of of a week, a month, a year, that just continues to grow. And we look at that and go, look at all the amazing things that God does in our lives every single day. And that will begin to then drown out the lies of the enemy that he doesn't do anything for us, couldn't possibly care about us. Come and support yourself. Be here. Be here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord God, that you are so good and you are so merciful and you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to give everything for us so that we could be with you. That's how precious we were. God, we are so far from worthy of your love, but you love us anyway, and that alone is reason to praise you. That alone is reason to be thankful that you are who you are, and it's not based on anything that we do because we are far from perfect, but in your eyes, we are washed clean in the blood of Jesus. So we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, let us not isolate. Let us not be separate from you. Our wish is to be closer than you to you that we have ever been before. So, Father, those of us who maybe are skeptical I've never been close to the Father. I've never been able to hear his voice. Father, I just pray right now that you speak to all of us more loudly and more clearly than you ever have before. Leave no doubt that you love us and you are speaking to us. Let us know you, Father. That's what we want. We don't have to offer sacrifice. We give ourselves to you because Jesus paid the price. So Father, we love you and we praise you this day and every day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to celebrate communion with us, if you're new here on the table in the back, we have little single serve communion cups. We're going to take a moment. Scripture says we do this every time we get together. If you're online out there, wherever you are, it's not critical what you grab, whether it's a wafer and and juice or wine, it's what it represents to you. And what the body represents, the body represents a Savior who willingly submitted himself to pain far beyond what we could ever imagine. And he did it for you. He did it allowing his body to be broken, knowing that many would absolutely reject his offer but to those who accept, he offers eternal life and salvation through him. If you accept that, take the wafer. The blood of Christ is, as Jesus himself describes it, it's the blood of the new covenant. We don't have to offer animal sacrifice like Job had to. We don't have to wonder if we got it wrong and somehow God has abandoned us because of that. We have the assurance through the blood that we are sanctified, we are reconciled to the Father. And it's our acceptance of that blood that seals us every time. If you accept that, take the blood. Lord, we thank you. 
and we praise you this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. I'm 
my victory.